Welcome to the moment that changed everything, where we interview notable creative people to gain insights into how they got started and learn more about the moments that shaped them and their careers. Peter Sussman's career is known by millions that have watched his work. Since 1985, he's brought to market hundreds of films and TV series in both drama and comedy, and they've been sold around the world. Peter's been personally nominated for three Primetime Emmy Awards and four Golden Globe Awards, and hardly anyone outside of Hollywood has ever heard of him. Are you creative? Do you love a challenge? NAC is a brief-based competition where brands ask for big ideas to help solve their biggest marketing challenges. Leading creative directors judge the ideas. Winners get the cash. Learn more at nationaladvertisingchallenge.com. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. So, Peter, did you go to the parties? To the parties? Yeah, the parties for the Emmys and the Golden Globes. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess to some. Um, I'm not, um, 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 what's the, uh, uh, they, they don't interest me as much as they do some others, but yeah, you know, um, more to support the talent and the folks I was working with. Okay, so let's get into this. So you graduated as a lawyer. Was your hope to practice law or how did you end up in television? Well, I had decided, um, that I wanted to go in the entertainment business. And so, um, and balancing my, you know, the middle-class conservative upbringing and sort of don't take a chance in Toronto with my desire to take a chance, I balanced my strategy by doing a law degree, thinking it would help open doors. In fact, I did the California bar, not because I wanted to be a lawyer in California. I was just trying to open opportunities to get myself to Los Angeles. So, um, I went to, um, so I did a law degree, and then when I was articling in Toronto, I met my future partners. Um, uh, my, my three partners at Alliance Atlantis were uh, Michael McMillan, Seton McLean, and Ted Riley, and they had um, started a fledgling production company out of film school, came to the law firm I was working at seeking assistance. Uh, the lawyers there kind of said to themselves, well, this is sort of a waste of time. This won't go anywhere. So give it to the articling student and he can deal with it. Um, I didn't know much or know anything, but that's how we met and we became great friends. And then after I finished uh, the bar in Ontario, soon after, I guess about six months after, I left uh, practicing law and joined uh, what was then uh, Atlantis Films and stayed in the business ever since. So while you were articling, there was no idea that it might end up being entertainment or that's what you wanted to do oh, and you're hoping this no. was the path? On the contrary. Um, when I went to article, the place I worked at, um, I specifically chose a firm that had, there were two lawyers there, who's, one whose practice was 100% entertainment and one whose practice I would say was about 50 or 60% entertainment. And I went to the two of them the first day of articling and said, hey, you know, I'll stay late at night, I'll work weekends, whatever you got. It's, an, it's a space I want to learn more about. So I consciously made that, um, that decision. So your story is one that the world knows by association. So when you go to a party of non-Hollywood insiders, and I got to believe everybody's got to talk to you about what you do, and, and you're a pretty modest guy, but do you lead with, I do a little te television production? Or if you're dealing with someone who's unbelievably obnoxious, would you ever say, like, 
have you ever heard of CSI or did you see Eugene Levy's acceptance speech for the seven Emmys for Schitt's Creek where he thanked me? How did Schitt's Creek happen? Um, uh, and you're right. I am a modest guy. I tend to, um, if someone's obnoxious, I usually just shy away. And if they're not, I tend to, um, um, I don't, I, I prefer to play down um, my experiences. Uh, Schitt's Creek has, a, you know, like all, like all, like many projects, um, Schitt's Creek had an interesting beginning. Um, Eugene and I have been friends for a long time. We produced a bunch of things together uh, over the years. One of the things we produced, um, well, I don't know, 20 years ago, we both exec produced. He wasn't in it. In fact, Joe Flaherty from SCTV was the lead in what we did. It was a series called Maniac Mansion. And uh, it was a Lucasfilm game. So it was a co-production we did with Lucasfilm. Um, and we did uh, three seasons of it. Anyway, um, and, and, and the secret about the Levy family is that um, Eugene's wife, Deb, Deb Devine, is the funniest one in the family by far. So, and I was always encouraging, sorry, bear with me, this story does go somewhere. Um, so I was always encouraging of Deb, who had not really flexed her comedic muscles on Maniac Mansion. I kept encouraging her to write a script and she finally did and we produced it and ended up being frankly one of the better episodes as I suspected it might be because She's so clever and funny. And so Deb always saw me thereafter as a bit of a, you know, inspiration, maybe even mentor or whatever. Fast forward 20 years later, Deb calls me uh, one day and says, I've written a feature script. I'd love your thoughts on it. I said, okay, send it over. And, and anyway, she sends me the script. I said, look, why don't we go have lunch and um, we can discuss it. So we have lunch, finish the discussion. As we walk out of the restaurant, Eugene's waiting by the curb in the car to pick up Deb. So I say to Gene, um, what's up? How you doing? What, what are you up to? He said, oh, I just, uh, I just produced this uh, little promo for a new series I'm uh, developed with Daniel, our, their son Daniel, uh, called Shit's Creek. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. Um, you know, what, what's your plan with it? And Eugene said, um, oh, my managers in LA are going to take it out and whatever. And as he's telling me this, I'm saying to myself, uh, which is something I, I, I'm, I guess I might be pretty good at um, in that I have a sort of an instinct about how maybe the path projects are best to go on. And um, uh, and Eugene, you know, I don't know if you ever saw his, much about his career, but things like SCTV and Waiting for Guffman and uh, A Mighty Wind and... and um, 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 I forget some of the, uh, you know, the, 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 those kinds of things he made over the years were what I would call um, uh, almost like home movies. And they were, he was fortunately allowed to do them in an environment that was somewhat unfettered. He wasn't getting notes. He wasn't, uh, you know, he, he, you know he, he was allowed a latitude to make things that, that suits both his personality, his pace, and, um, and his comedic sense. So as he's telling me this, I'm thinking, I just don't think that's good. That's the best route to go into the U.S. market because it's just the nature of Eugene. I said, look, Gene, um, it's not, I'm not involved, but do me a favor. Send me the promo. I want to watch it and then we'll talk about it. So um, he sends me the promo and it's fall down funny. Uh, and Catherine O'Hara is in it with him. And, and I the two of them, especially because of those movies they had made with Christopher Guest, um, you know, they're a bit of a franchise. So I called Gene. I said, look, it's fall down funny. It's really good. I really think um, you should, uh, and you guys being a franchise, you really ought to try and sell it in Canada first and then go to the U.S. once you have, let's say, a 10, 13 episode order, whatever. 
And so we went down that path. Um, I went with Gene to the CBC and they bought the show. And so we then started building the pieces to go to camera and six seasons later and a seven, or it was actually, a, it was eight Emmy Awards, six. It was, the, it was the first time ever in the history of television that a comedy show, not, uh, you know, not Archie Bunker, not Seinfeld, not uh, MASH, not, you know, not Lucille Ball. It's the first time a comedy show ever won all six major categories. Writing, directing, act, all four acting categories and best series. So it's interesting that you say in Canada. Was that because there's a great deal more flexibility? Because I knew they would embrace him um, uh, more readily and accept the manner in which Eugene and Eugene and Dan as well uh, would want to make this show. Is that what you recommend for many shows? or Because obviously the budgets shows. are different. Yeah, you know, the staple of American comedy shows is multi-camera sitcom. This is, you know, with an audience. This is a single-camera sitcom. Uh, you know, much of what Eugene made in the past was largely, you know, not unscripted, but semi-scripted, where actors have the latitude to improvise a bit. And that's hard to do in the, in the, with this, in the American television market, um, with, you know, executives giving notes and, so um, I just knew he would have um, uh, an easier time mounting the project um, if he ran it through Canada first and then went to the US. So Peter, I wanna talk about your job a bit because all of us who watch TV think we know a lot about it. So we all believe that we kind of understand the creative process for what writers, directors, or actors, but your job's completely different. You have to look at an idea, I guess, on paper and understand how will it extend over multiple stories over a, maybe it's one year or maybe in the case of CSI, I think there's 797 episodes. How do you explain your creative process that you go through what you think will get made? Well, um, I don't have to, uh, the writers really take on the uh, challenge of how do you make a good idea, uh, you know, uh, uh, have longevity and carry on season over season. My job is more to recognize that that can happen and help convince the various buyers or platforms uh, that I'm right that it can happen. Once they buy the show, and usually because they do like the pitch, the script, the scripts, uh, whatever it is that you're using to mount the show, um, uh, and you've given them some comfort that there is longevity. And not every project, by the way, of course, is meant to be a long-running show. Some are meant to be short-running shows. Some are meant to be just films or four-hour miniseries or whatever. But for the ones that um, are meant to run a long time, my job is just to cause the, help cause the buyers to believe that if it does succeed in, in gaining an audience, that it does, it can sustain itself over a long period. How it actually does that I slowly move away from that, then it obviously falls to the, the writers and directors and hands-on producers. You know, over time, I've gotten far and far farther away from the camera. So creatively though, what do you go through when you look at one of these ideas? Well, uh, the main job actually, and this is something that takes a little time to, um, 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 I guess, realize or buy into, the job is really not deciding what you think is good. 
it's deciding what you think is sellable. And it's therefore deciding what you think the buyers will want. You know, as I often say, a really, really, really good idea that nobody wants to buy is a shitty idea. Fair enough. You know, and, and I guess what I'm saying might take, it sounds like it takes a bit of the art out of the business. Um, um, and, and, and I guess it does, because really, and, and actually what I'm about to say has, has now been alleviated somewhat, and I can explain if you're curious, but, you know, for certainly in the traditional linear historical television of schedules, and especially with advertising, the job was really to, to, to assess somebody's schedule, find out what their appetite is, what they think they need to add to their schedule, and then go find it and bring it to them. So it, it's, it's a little more science than it is art, I guess, on, on, on that level. Now, that has changed somewhat because, of course, more and more, nobody <laughs> watches by a schedule. We all, you know, pick off a shelf. And so the uh, rhythm as between buyer and seller has, is changing uh, because the, you know, the historical Monday morning um, uh, get to the office if you're a buyer and, and, you know, and look at the ratings, you know, afraid to see what they say uh, and whether you still have a job and that and you're judged literally every Monday um, on the week's ratings the week before. Um, obviously, it still exists and, you know, whether, you know, at ABC and CBS and NBC, whatever, but it's, it's being more and more alleviated by the streaming platforms um, or the subscription model where, you know, shows live on a shelf. Nobody's really judging. Yes, they want their shows to be watched. They certainly, more importantly, want their subscriptions to <laughs> stick and, and even grow. But it's, it's less granular in, in how it, each show is judged. In fact, they all recognize, too, that what they really have instead of a schedule is a menu. And even if you have a show that might not be the highest, most watched show or the highest rated or whatever, it still rounds out the appetite that often many subscribers or certainly a family of subscribers might have. So all that to say that um, the historical job of filling a schedule is, has, has evolved and has changed. And now it's trying to find good ideas to put on a shelf. And so I would say, therefore, there's a little less science and a little more art in, in that equation. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Um, no, it makes a lot of sense. So now it's perhaps a more creative time. Is that the suggestion? It is, you know, and, 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 and outfits like Netflix, you know, they have marketed themselves as saying, we're less hands-on, we let filmmakers have latitude, and, and they do, um, but they are, they're, they're kind of allowed that because of the psychological uh, value of not having to check ratings every Monday morning, in, in, my, in my view, that they, you know, if a show, it's the relationship as between schedule, buyer, boss, delivery, show in the old linear sketch was so intense. It was so, it was wound so tightly um, and you were so judged on the ratings that it made people crazy and people got fired over bad ratings. Today, it's more about making films, making shows, putting them on shelves, giving people a menu, giving them a, a latitude of appetite. Some will be big watched a lot, some won't be, doesn't matter, you know. So it's made that rhythm between buyer and seller far more um, uh, enjoyable. 
Um, so is it more the business side now that you're looking at or the creative side that you're looking at? Well, you can't separate the two. They go hand in hand. I, I you know, with the old joke, it's called show business, uh, you know, um, I get for me personally, yes, I used to be close, as I, I call it closer to the camera. I didn't mean literally the camera, but what I meant was, you know, in my earlier years, I was closer to the um, production process, you know, actually in an editing suite, in a sound mixing room, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as I um, evolved and, and as my uh, career has grown and I guess my acceptance in the business and my relationships, I'm able to, I guess, instead of dedicating myself, call it to, uh, you know, uh, um, four different things at 25% each, I'm probably now more like, uh, you know, 10 or 20 things at five to 10% each. But because of how long I've been doing it, I can, um, my five or 10% is probably worse than my, you know, my 25% from uh, years earlier. Probably the same in any business. <laughs> so I know many musicians listen to music differently than people who aren't. Um, they hear imperfect notes, so they become focused on the craft more than the sound. With your work and in television, do you watch television differently? Or I guess maybe the next question is, do you even watch TV? Um, I, I do watch. You, you can't really be effective in the business, I think, unless you know what's going on. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than going to pitch a buyer or a show and they say, oh, it's kind of like our show such and such. And if you say, oh, I've never watched it, they kind of go, well, you know, <laughs> that's not exactly a flattering response. Um, so you, you have to watch, uh, I, I try to watch everything at least once, if not, you know, if not the whole thing, at least an episode of, of whatever, just so I can be familiar. Um, so I, pro I probably watch, I would say, with three different um, agendas, although, although probably one agenda per whatever I'm doing. One agenda is to be up to date on what's going on and what folks are making and what folks are buying. One is for my own enjoyment, just, you know, to, to watch a show because it interests me. And the third is I will sometimes watch things to see how they're made. And by that, I mean, instead of really watching the show, I'm kind of watching what you don't see on the screen. I'm watching where the camera is, where the camera moves, why the decisions are being made. And so I try to, um, you know, just to educate my, um, my, my film manufacturing skills. Um, what do you find clever today like that? Meaning, um, well, uh, it's hard to new different new lining up cameras different. What's great today is that it's far less formulaic. It's we're at a, we're at a, we're, we're at a point now where frankly, almost anything goes. And in fact, difference is celebrated. So I kind of love that, that, um, you know, there was a, uh, it all started for me, I guess, uh, uh, I, I say 20 years ago, there was sort of a, or, and more, there was a, there was a pace to how a, a TV for sure was made. Um, and then um, there was a period there in the nineties when the pace sort of like where you had, they, and the camera was a lot more, you know, steady cam shots or handheld shots where the camera wasn't even steady. And, you know, to some people it was like, it was, it was, it was like a jolt, like, whoa, my, is that an error? Oh no, they're trying to do that, you know? So, um, uh, I just love how um, 
and this goes hand in hand, I guess, with the movement from a schedule to a shelf, where again, more and more of attitude, not only with what shows are being made, but how they're being made. And as I said, I think the trick is to more and more try to find different things uh, to do. So when you're approving things now, um, um, is it comedy? Is it drama? Is it, what, what, what do you look for? Yeah, I'm, I think things that you want to produce. produce. Well, again, I'm not really producing anymore. I or, or, or approving, I, I, I guess. I help others um, uh, produce. You know, um, uh, my wife Sarah, who's a, 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 a very experienced media exec in the UK, um, she and I have a company that owns positions in about uh, uh, fifteen talent uh, or production and talent management uh, companies. Uh, those folks rely on us for a bit of wisdom, a bit of thought, a bit of judgment, um, introductions, that kind of thing. So uh, I, 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 as I call it, I'm not as close to the cameras I used to be, so I, so I don't really produce anymore. Um, although my son, my son Jack, um, yeah, bear with me, uh, is a basketball junkie and he has an Instagram platform with close to a million and a half followers that is basketball theme called at best crosses, which is a playing of your basketball guy, but a playing basketball. Anyway, he, he, so most of his world doing that has been user generated content. He now is doing premium uh, content for all the usual uh, suspects and buyers you'd expect. Anyway, so I guess in, uh, cause he's my son, you know, uh, I miss, I've been maybe a little closer to the camera with him. Um, but for the most part, most of my work, is not is, is producing producers <laughs> <laughs> probably the best way to find it so you brought up your son so the this podcast is meant to show young people that um despite where they find themselves today they can still find something and achieve what our guests have achieved what advice can you give to our audience about how to get what they want from their careers um i guess uh you know when, when I started angling to get into the uh, uh, content business, product, whatever you want to call it, Hollywood, um, that wasn't seen as um, uh, available. You know, no guidance counselor in my high school ever said, you know, law, medicine, de uh, dentistry, uh, Hollywood, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, so I went against the grain, the, the grain of society, the grain of, and not my parents, but the, the grain of, um, you know, certainly the sense in the community of finding uh, a responsible uh, or, or a more reliable or predictable path. Um, so all that to say that I think that people shouldn't be, a, uh, young folks should not be afraid to pursue what they have uh, desires and passion for, notwithstanding what anybody says to them. Um, and don't give up because it uh, I have a whole pile of uh, friends and folks I know who also pursued the, the Hollywood dream and I would say every single one of them uh, achieved some took two years some took ten years some achieved millions some achieved less than million but all achieved a level of, of um, satisfaction that fulfilled the dream so it's proof to me that if you follow the dream and hang in there long enough, 
um, don't give up, um, you can arrive at, um, at your destination. So then I still have a chance at advertising. Uh, um, <laughs> Just taking a little longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, our show's entitled The Moment That Changed Everything. Um, Peter, you've probably had a number of moments. Can you let us in on what the first one was? Life is a bunch of moments. And, you know, I guess my first moment was, was being lucky enough to be born to my parents. <laughs> I, had, I had incredible <laughs> parents, uh, the, the best you can have. And so that um, set the ta sets the table for everything. Um, but, and, you know, and there's moments you have that today look, uh, would sound insignificant. But in, at that moment in time, <laughs> it was as significant as you know, way, way, what seemingly are way more uh, significant moments later. I guess I'd have to say that um, the CSI franchise um, was a remarkable event. Um, uh, just to get, try to put some context around that. Uh, this was back at, uh, uh, at, the, at the end of the 1990s when there was no streaming. Uh, network television in America was still the, you know, the juggernaut, the anchor of, 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 of not only television in America, but frankly, television worldwide. It set the table worldwide on, on you know, on the, it, it owned the marketplace. Um, and every single show on that ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox uh, schedule back then was uh, owned by one of six companies, uh, Disney, uh, Universal, uh, Paramount, um, uh, you know, the studios, Warners, et cetera. Nobody owned any of that real estate um, outside of them. There were folks that had, you know, they were producing inside of their Warners deal or their NBC deal or whatever, or, you know, had, but nobody owned a show on those schedules other than, uh, those six companies, and it is in uh, scripted television. I'm talking about, which is the you know the the mainstay, especially back then. Today, non-scripted has a larger voice and role, but back then it was you know the the, the center of gravity of the schedule and the most expensive content, and therefore it was very hard to own any shows um, in that environment unless you're a Hollywood studio. There was a good reason why they owned them all. The fact that this independent um, company came to own three shows, all in the same franchise, but three shows in that environment, um, and the three turned out to be, as a franchise, probably the most valuable uh, of all the shows, maybe even one, well, certainly one of the most valuable pieces of television ever made, was remarkable. And in, 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 in Hollywood, you know, I'd have conversations. People say, oh, yeah, you guys are involved in CSI. What's your role? And I'd say, oh, well, we co-own it with CBS. They, they, they commercialize the U.S. We commercialize the rest of the world. And then we, you know, we pool the results and split them 50-50. And they said, sorry, you, you, you sell it around? Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we sell it around the world. No, no one could believe me. How, how did that happen? How, you know, so of all the moments in my life that, were important moments. I guess that one <laughs> um, 
was the is it was the most extraordinary relative to how it compared to um everything around me at the time um so um i guess i'll you know well it was it was a significant enough event that certainly made it into um uh, a book <laughs> so um <laughs> so i guess uh, you know that, that's the only event in my life that so far i think has been in a book <laughs> so <laughs> um peter what did the idea look like when you first got it um, well, it's an interesting circumstance. Um, I don't know if you want me to explain, but um, yeah, stop me if I if I I'm boring you. Um, in America, uh, there were these rules in place. The what was called the financial interest and in syndication rules, or, or uh, uh, loosely called the FinCEN rules, and um, uh, and they've been put in place for many years, and they were designed basically said that because the networks were so powerful, you know, there was a time in the, you know, 70s where the networks had like 90, the three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, there was no Fox network yet. They had 90% of the audience. So Washington decided, the FCC decided, you know what, um, it, should, it wouldn't be fair if those networks owned their um, content in prime time. They can license it, but they can't own it. That would be too dominant. So what happened is, so Hollywood basically became, you know, a, a town where one end of the town were the makers and sellers of content, the studios, Warner's and Universal and Disney. And on this side of town were the buyers, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And these, and the guys on one side of town sold to the guys on the other side of town. That was, and then cable came in in the mid seventies and by the mid eighties, cable was starting to get, you know, more and more relevant and by the mid nineties, Cable was becoming so relevant that the network audience had gone from like 90% down to less than 50%. So the networks lobbied Washington and said, look, these rules, they're really out of date now. You know, we don't have the power we used to be, we used to have. And so you really ought to, you know, get rid of them. And they did. So what immediately happened is Disney bought ABC. And soon thereafter, uh, uh, Universal bought NBC, you know, or, or Universal and NBC merged. And of course, CBS Today is part of Viacom and Paramount. Um, so uh, 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 th things completely changed. Well, that happened. Uh, so in, uh, I forget the, I think it was 1998, 88 or 89, I forget, um, a guy named Anthony Zyker who had never um, uh, been part of a TV show. Um, he was driving a tram in Vegas, but speculating, you know, in his mind, speculating what a good TV series might, might be. He went on a ride in, um, uh, uh, with, uh, he spent a night with the, uh, or a few nights with uh, uh, the police officers in Vegas, sitting in the back of the car, observing, and wrote out on a two-page uh, summary what he thought would be an interesting thing, which is, how the crime scene is really a character. You know, when they show up and they put that yellow tape around and it really becomes what, 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 and trying to understand what happened in that crime scene would be a really interesting, anyway, so he wrote it up as a show called CSI. And he had actually specced a feature script to the Jerry Bruckheimer company in a prior year or two. So he sent it to the Jerry Bruckheimer company and they said, uh, oh, that's interesting. In fact, a, a guy named Jonathan Littman, a very able executive at the Brookheimer Company, read the two pages and said, hey, this is pretty good. And Disney, or sorry, uh, the Brookheimer Company at the time had a first look deal with Disney. 
So they went to their uh, uh, parent, uh, or not parent, but their, you know, their, their, host, their home, Disney, and said, we have a great idea for a TV show. And Disney said, oh, well, we just bought ABC. So let's go pitch that. Let's go show it to them. So they go show it to ABC and ABC passes. And Disney says, well, okay, well, you know, they don't want it. So let's, let's go pitch CBS. They go pitch CBS and CBS says, um, well, this is great. Okay, we'll buy, we'll buy it, meaning we will pay the money towards writing a script. That's the first stage in network development. So they pay Anthony to write a CSI script and the script is actually quite good. And they decide in that year, which they do every year uh, uh, in January, as the networks do, and they still do it this way somewhat, they pick of the 100 scripts they've developed that year, they pick 10 or 15 to shoot as pilots. So CBS says to Disney, good news, of the many scripts we've developed, we want to develop the CSI script. And um, Disney says, great. So they go in, that, that's when the real deal has to get made because if you're going to shoot a pilot, it's going to cost millions of dollars. That's just going to hopefully lead to a series order, which is going to cost many millions of dollars. So that's when they start negotiating and they couldn't make a deal because having bought ABC, Disney had this attitude, which is, which they had not so much vis-a-vis -vis CBS, vis-a-vis -vis the town. They were kind of saying, we got our own network now. We don't have, you know, we don't have to follow your, uh, your lead buyers. If you don't like it, you know, screw you. We're going to go, we'll, 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 we'll make stuff at our own network. So there was a, it, it was a, it was a, 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 in that, in the years that followed the initial years that followed the elimination of the FinCEN rules, there was um, tension more so than ever among these studios that were buying up the networks, how they dealt with other networks. Cause it was, it, it was, it was a dream come true after years of begging and groveling to make a sale to a network to now have your own network was a very um, fulfilling um, experience. Anyway, so CBS called me one day and said, um, we're having the, and I had produced a lot for CBS in the 90s, mostly uh, almost entirely in the movie and miniseries space and quite successfully, very high rated things and, and um, lots of um, uh, award nominations, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so Disney, or sorry, CBS called me and said, we're having the damnedest time with um, ABC or with Disney on this um, show. Uh, and we've now got to a point where um, we can't make a deal. There's too much, and never in the history of television, or certainly US television, had there ever been an order for a pilot as between a network and a studio where a deal didn't get made. Never happened, never, ever, ever happened. It's happening now because of the Cold War created by the elimination of the thin sin rules and the different strutting and attitude that now the studio might have towards the, the, the buyer. Um, in any event, they say to ABC, well, if, you're, if, it, if we can't make a deal, how, do you mind if we go elsewhere? And Disney said, sure. I, they're gonna take Disney's project and find a different partner. And they came to me. And um, I read it, loved it. Um, um, and um, the rest is history. As, as, as the book that, that talks about CSI says, it was, uh, I forget the line, but it was written by the writer from the New York Times, I forget his name, um, who writes a lot about the media space. He said it was the most valuable decision Peter Sussman ever made. Probably true. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, Peter, what are you working on now? Um, well, as I said, I, I, I'm helping producers produce. So, um, uh, so I have my hand or my fingers in probably uh, 10 or 15 or maybe more, maybe 20 different projects at various stages. Um, I help companies um, uh, who are deciding whether to maybe sell themselves or buy other companies or merge together or evolve. Um, so um, it's hard to say, it, it, you know, maybe my uh, uh, doing four things at 25% that evolved into, you know, 10 or 20 things at five or 10% might now be more like uh, 50 things at, you know, 2% each. So it's, it's so splintered uh, over so many things that um, it's hard to be specific about um, What's the thing that you get a kick out of? Building. I love building and creating. I love, you know, uh, uh, I, my, my partner at Alliance Atlantis has framed uh, in his office in Toronto the initial email when uh, CBS emailed me about CSI. Yeah, I can't remember what it says, but it says something like, hey, Peter, we have this show, CSI, you might be interested in, can we show it to you? You know, I love that from a, a sentence in an email became a multi-billion dollar uh, asset. And of course, the many steps along the way to get there. I love building and I love creating. And so i.e. starting with a blank page or empty desk or nothing and, and turn that, that's my favorite thing. More so, much more so than uh, operating. Peter, I can't tell you what a pleasure today has been. Um, thanks so much um, um, for taking the time to talk to us. Can we call you back and do a follow-up uh, show with you? Of course. Anyway, Peter, thanks so much. All the best. Okay, thanks, Mark. Good seeing you. Okay, good seeing you. Bye. This episode has been brought to you by the National Advertising Challenge, North America's only brief-based challenge that sends winners to Cannes, France.